following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 22 of our discussion of Morgoth's Ring. And tonight we are going to come to the end of the Athrobeth and to a most unexpected document, uh, the commentary on the Athrobeth, uh, which is which is pretty cool in several different ways and presents, I think, a bit of an interesting puzzle. Uh, so I'm looking forward to talking about that. Um, one quick announcement. I just wanted to mention again, Middlemoot is coming up soon, uh, and I invite everybody to join us for that. That's August 10th. Saturday, August 10th is Middlemoot. The Heart of Hope is our theme. Uh, lots to talk about from our recent discussions, of course, uh, there. Um, uh, there have been a, a bunch of good proposals. I think uh, the date, the deadline technically was yesterday, uh, but my suspicion is if you get a proposal in real quick here in the next day or two, you could still probably sneak it in. Did I say the 10th of August? I'm still just stuck. I really am. I kind of, uh, I think so. That's a subconscious desire for me to like stop time moving forward. Um, uh, it's the uh, the subconscious subconscious cry of someone who's been uh, banging his head against major deadlines. Sorry, October tenth is of course exactly what I meant. Um, October tenth is our date. But as I said, if you uh, if you get a if you if you have a, a proposal, something you'd like to talk about or discussion you'd like to lead or something like that, uh, please do. Uh, 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 go ahead and send that suggestion in, and there there might it, you might still catch them uh, in time to uh, uh, to enter in there. So, uh, just wanted to mention that again. Uh, definitely commend that. Looking forward to that. Uh, uh, looking forward to that event. Um, and now let's jump straight back into our text. So we had gotten to uh, the emotional ending. Of the Athrobeth, um, when uh, Andreth reveals the reasons for her bitterness, right, and why she feels the way that she does, uh, the resentment that she feels against the elves, uh, the way that she feels patronized as as a human by the elves, um, and we can see her anger about how Ignor turned away from her. Uh, when she was younger, um, and she doesn't understand, she doesn't understand why that happened, why he did that. And Finrod is coming around to that. This is this uh, the passage we ended with uh, last time. Um, I wanted to just kind of, um, I just wanted to read that just to kind of transition back into where we were there. Um, oh, hang on a second. Uh, let's see. No, Mark, I am streaming on Twitch. Should be fine. Uh, you might need to reload Twitch if you wanted to see it there, but should be. Far as I can tell, I'm broadcasting okay. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I sometimes forget things. That happens quite a bit, but I'm pretty sure that it's happening okay. Okay. All right. Uh, so here's the last slide that we were reading. Say on, said Andreth. Say, who art now but a wise woman, alone, and age shall not touch him, and, and, and age that shall not touch him has already set winter's gray in thy hair. But say not, thou to, say not thou to me, 
for so he once did. Alas, said Finrod, that is the bitterness, beloved Adoneth, woman of men, is it not, that has run through all your words? If I could speak any comfort, you would deem it lordly from one on my side of the sundering doom. But what can I say, save to remind you of the hope that you yourself have revealed? I did not say that it was ever my hope, answered Andreth, and even were it so, I would still cry. Why should this hurt come here and now? Why should we love you? Why should ye love us if ye do, and yet set the gulf between? Why, in the end, of course, what Andreth is kind of coming back to in a very personal and emotional way, right? Um, uh, in a very uh, applicable way, in a very non-theoretical way for Andreth. Um, coming back ultimately to the question, why, why two races? Why two races, right? Um, and again, the answer to that question originally, right, and when we go back to the Book of Lost Tales and even Tolkien's early elf poetry um, from the very, very beginning of that Book of Lost Tales period, uh, things like Courtierian Among the Trees, which is sort of part of that time, uh, things like You and Me in the Cottage of Lost Play, um, even the little snippet that we get of his, uh, uh, that, um, oh, what's it called? The wood... Uh, the, the, the earliest snippet of his poetry that we have from when he was a teenager that survived. Um, anyway, uh, I, I, all of his early elf poetry, right, speaks of this longing, right, this sort of longing towards uh, the idea, at least, of the elves. Um, this something that has been lost, especially in England, right, this memory of a thing that was there. So the original reason... Right. If there is an original reason uh, for why Tolkien's mythology, why Tolkien's world has two races, is that it speaks to the uh, it, it, it derived from what he as a human being right, felt as this longing towards this lost other. Right. This uh, the, the lost um, the wonder and uh, the magic, to use a fraught word, but, um, you know, of this, you know, of of the elder time of, uh, of ancient myths and legends. Um, and all that was kind of embodied in the elves, uh, for him. Uh, so that there should be something other. It was the, it was from the beginning, I would say the desirability of the other to Tolkien in general, right? Not like desire for particular elves in, in, in a special, um, but the desirability that elves should be right. And the desire to tell stories, to create a mythology in which the elves were. Um, so desire is the root of the thing in some ways, I would say. Um, but of course, it, uh, you know, it's a long time since then. And he's, he's writing now 50 years later than he was writing some of that earlier stuff. Um, and, um, uh, you know, now looking back now that the world has been told now that the story has been written what what why should there be why should there be uh these different races why should there be two you know races who are the children of Iluvatar what's Iluvatar's plan what's the point and remember we said this was a uh, uh this is one of the things uh you know it's one of the ways that I would character if I had to give a single answer to the question why um you know what is the like primary question that the Athrobeth is trying to answer. My, my, my answer to that question might be something like, why are there 
why are there two different children of Iluvatar? Why elves and men, not just one? Um, um, what is Iluvatar's purpose in creating the two different species, the two related uh, but separated by doom species of elves and men? And again, for Andreth, she is coming at that question from a highly non-theoretical question, from a deeply emotionally fraught um, and personal view of that question. Why is there, as Finrod characterizes it here, a sundering doom? And why should there be? Why should the children of Iluvatar, kins, you know, close kin, as Finrod keeps saying, yet have this sundering doom? And more again, or to say, to ask the same question in another way, and for her an even more painful way, given that there is a sundering doom, right? Given that Iluvatar has chosen to create these two separate, distinct species whose role in relationship to the world is quite different, and even if they're complementary to each other, okay, but why should this hurt come here and now? That's still what she would cry, right? Why should we love you? And why should ye love us and yet set the gulf between? Why should we still, why should this love exist? Why should we be brought so near and yet be kept so far apart? Um, but notice the assumption that she's making. Why should we love you and why should ye love us and yet set the gulf between? She's blaming the elves. She's blaming Ignor. Why did he... Why would he not say yes? Why would he not uh, act on it, right? Um, the story, as we've been able to understand here so far, is there was mutual love between Ignor and Andreth, um, but he left. He would not act on it. Um, it is a requited but tragically unconsummated love that the two of them mutually had to each other, and she sees this as a self-imposed thing on his part. She was she was game. He was not game. Why not? Why not? Why did he set a gulf between them? Because we were so made, close kin, said Finrod. But we did not make ourselves, and therefore we, the Eldar, did not set the gulf. Nay, Adoneth, we are not lordly in this, but pitiful. That word will displease thee, yet pity is of two kinds. One is of kinship recognized, and is near to love. The other is of difference of fortune perceived and is near to pride. I speak of the former. Um, they are not lordly. They are full of pity. Right? They are pitiful. They perceive. Right? They didn't make the gulf, but they perceive the gulf. And on the other side of the gulf, they can perceive... Ignore again, notice when he's... Finrod, again, being very delicate here, um, he's addressing his brother's feelings indirectly as yet, right? Um, he's... When he's saying, we are not lordly in this, but pitiful, um, I believe him to be speaking directly out of Mary, Mary, I agree, out of compassion uh, for uh, for Andreth, um, uh, directly about Ignor's feelings, right? He did not walk away from her 
out of lordliness, right? It's not because he considered himself above her, right? It's not because he looked down on her that he considered her not worth his time or something like that, right? It's not because he considered himself so far above her that he kept himself away. It's because of his pity that it's not lordliness, it's pity. Um, yeah. David, that's a really good question. Um, David Attlee is wondering how long the word pitiful um, has had the modern connotation of worthy of pity. That is, if something that like, we'll, we'll look at something, we'll say that's pitiful, meaning you should feel pity for that or for whoever's suffering that, right? Um, rather than saying we are pitiful in the sense of full of pity, which is what the word obviously means, <laughs> right? Um, uh is something which uh, is a worthy object of pity uh, is the opposite of pitiful, right? It's, it inspires pity. Uh, what would that be? Uh, um, uh, pitif, uh, pitiferous? Uh, it would be, uh, yeah, like to make pity happen. So I guess it would, that, would, that would be uh, <laughs> pitogenic, says Arthur. <laughs> Uh, pitiable, yes, but see, pitiable isn't strong enough. Pitiable isn't strong enough. Pitiable, um, but see, even there, if you think about it, um, if something is pitiable, it is able to be pitied, right? Or, again, would it mean that if just as pitiful means that you are full of pity? Pitiable? Uh, I mean, I guess probably it would mean... That able to be, but it doesn't seem like a strong enough word. Pitiable seems a weak version of that word. Um, uh, it's not just that fear that pity is theoretically possible. It's that the, that pity is consciously being stirred. Um, uh, piteous Josiah is better. The archaic piteous. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. David Atley was thinking of that one too. Um, I kind of like pitogenic, uh, <laughs> Arthur. That's that's getting at a little bit more what I what I would want to what I would want to see. But I don't have the answer to that. I mean, if anyone has access to the OED, I would look it up there to uh, look at the usages uh, for pitiful uh, and see uh, how how far that one dates back. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Now, Cecilia, you're certainly right that there are many humans who might have abandoned Andreth with much less pity than Ignor showed, um, though she doesn't realize it. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, but it's also understandable, you know, that she still feels bitter about it, especially if she feels. Remember, remember that note in her objections, right? That like humans had been done out of their rights, like they were the victims of injustice. Um, this is one of her complaints. Um, they've been unrightfully deprived of what should have been theirs. And now look at the consequence of it. Right. Um, now she's suffering. She's been rejected, um, but it shouldn't have been that way. That gulf is only there accidentally, as it were, right? Only as a consequence of the way that the humans have been victimized by Morgoth, right? That anyway has been her, um, uh, has been her uh, 
tack all the way through. Notice the one thing, it's the one element of this conversation that they've never gotten back to. Um, he asked her, Finrod asked her straight up, what did humans do to anger Eru, right? What did you do in the darkness? Um, and she did not answer, would not answer that question, um, and never has answered that question. Um, but she's been ever since then kind of backpedaling a little bit, I think, on the question of we've been done down, right? Men have been, uh, uh, are the victims in this. Um, she was very strong on that note um, early on. But she's uh, uh, been, I don't want to say weakening on it, but she's been kind of backing off that a little bit. So although she hasn't come forward with it, um, fortunately... We'll get it anyway, but um, she's not come forward with it um, yet. Nevertheless, we can kind of see it uh, anyway. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So I can't move on from this definition of pity by Finrod or the two different kinds of pity without reflecting uh, on Bilbo and Gollum, of course. Like, I don't know about you, but whenever I'm thinking about pity in Tolkien, I always come back to Bilbo and Gollum. Um, and, of course, Gandalf's commentary on uh, Bilbo's pity for Gollum. One is of kinship recognized and is near to love. The other is of difference of fortune perceived and is near to pride. Um, and this is very interesting to me because the pity of... Bilbo for Gollum is, of course, explicitly good. I mean, that is uh, it, a very big deal is made of Bilbo's pity for Gollum. Um, but um, uh, pity, his pity for Gollum contains the first, kinship recognized. He does imagine how he would feel in Gollum's point, of, in Gollum's situation. Right. He does sort of imaginatively establish a kind of kinship with Gollum and his mind sort of shudders back from that. And that is a big part of the pity that he feels. But the difference of fortune perceived is also a very big part of Bilbo's pity for Gollum. Right. Um, he thinks about Gollum's situation and how miserable he's been down here all alone in the dark in this uh, cold lake with nasty fish and nothing else and, uh, you know, no companionship and how just how horrible his life has been. Um, and he does not he, he resists the temptation uh, to just to dehumanize Gollum. Right. Uh, out of his own fear. Right. To justify stabbing him in the dark. Um, putting his eyes out, right? Which is that input, that the really violent impulse that he has, right? Um, and uh, he, um, he he definitely experiences both of those things, right? Um, he his pity helps him to overcome uh, again that temptation to to dehumanize Gollum and to excuse killing him, to excuse treating him in a way that he wouldn't treat any. A person, right? Um, not a fair fight is his, you know, no, not a fair fight is his very first 
positive thought, right, with which, you know, with, with which his conscience rebuts the impulse, uh, the fear-inspired impulse to just stab uh, Gollum in the dark while he has a chance and put his eyes out and kill him. Um, not a fair fight. Um, you know, we should be operating on a level playing field, right? I should treat him as I would want someone else to treat me. That is kinship recognized. But what he goes on to talk about is definitely difference of fortune perceived. Um, and it is true that that is near to pride, that it is very easy for that to become pride or for pride to express a version of that, you know. Um, and that's the kind of pity that everybody objects to, right? That's the, the pity that Andreth isn't going to want to hear if uh, Finrod anticipates. It's the pity that Eowyn is not interested in. Um, uh, but um, Faramir, of course, says don't spurn pity, right? Um, the kind of pity nobody likes is the pity which is the next-door neighbor to pride, which is directly connected to pride, right? The kind of pity which says... I am so much better than you, right? I'm just so glad I'm not you, right? That's the kind of pity, um, which is, and that is difference of fortune perceived. But difference of fortune perceived is also simply, as it was with Bilbo and Gollum, um, it's also a question of acknowledgement of someone else's suffering, right? To perceive and acknowledge the suffering of someone else, that's pity, right? And to an, to, to an extent, there has to be a difference of fortune in order for if you're suffering the same way that other person does, you're not going to feel pity for that person. You might commiserate with that person. You might establish a different kind of bond, which might be even more congenial to the other person, perhaps. But it's not pity. Exactly. You're going to be feeling you're way too likely to be wrapped up in pity for yourself. Right. Um, uh, so, yeah, Um Again, it's it's clear to see how the difference of fortune perceived can definitely go either way, right? Um, he is right, I think, in Andreth's case to be cautious of that last one, right? Um, he's he's saying, I speak of the former, the pity that we are full of that Ignor feels is of kinship recognized it's respect for you as a person. He left you because he respects you. So that should help, Andreth. Um, uh, yeah, now, Bruce, I agree. Having better fortune isn't the same as I am so much better than you. Exactly. That's how the bad kind... That's, that's how the bad kind of pity becomes the bad kind of pity, right? When it is... When it becomes really less about reaching out to the other person and more about distancing yourself from them, right? When an expression of pity is really a concealed way of saying, I'm so glad I'm not you, right? That's the really bad kind of pity. Um, that The kind of pity which is essentially pushing someone away and holding them at arm's reach instead of bringing yourself closer to them. But it can only happen if you're not in the same position. Um, it's really, I don't think, possible. Uh, if there is no difference of fortune perceived. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, David Atley says, the good kind is more like there, but for the grace of God go I. Yes, yes. And that's, of course, where kinship recognized is part of that, 
Right. Um, and that is, I think, one of the things that we can see Bilbo experiencing uh, in the pity that he has for Gollum there. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Carita says it's different to say I'm better off than you than to say I'm better than you. Uh, and it certainly, you know, that his Finrod's expression, it's it's nearness to pride. Right. Carita, you can pity someone without saying I'm better than you. But I, it's a it's 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 a neighbor. Right. It's easy to make that jump and even easier, perhaps, for that to be perceived as what is being said, right, as what's going on, even if that's not what the person is saying or feeling. Um, uh, and that, I think, is what Faramir was cautioning Eowyn about, right, when he says, don't, 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 uh, don't be upset if I pity you. Um, I'm not, I'm not saying, I, that doesn't mean I think I'm better than you. Um, uh, it means... I perceive your suffering, and I care about that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, anyway, okay, sorry, but I had to. I I I couldn't resist uh, digressing on pity just a little bit. Okay. Speak of neither to me," said Andreth. "I desire neither. I was young, and I looked on his flame, and now I am old and lost. He was young, and his flame leaped towards me, but he turned away." And he is young still. Do candles pity moths? Or moths candles when the wind blows them out? said Finrod. Adoneth, I tell thee, Iconar the sharp flame loved thee. For thy sake now he will never take the hand of any bride of his own kindred, but live alone to the end, remembering the morning in the hills of Dorthonian. But too soon in the north wind his flame will go out, Foresight is given to the Eldar in many things not far off, though seldom of joy. And I say to thee, thou shalt live long in the order of your kind, and he will go forth before thee, and he will not wish to return. Then Andreth stood up and stretched her hands to the fire. Then why did he turn away? Why leave me when I had still a few good years to spend? Alas, said Finrod, I fear the truth will not satisfy thee. The Eldar have one kind, and ye another, and each judges the others by themselves, until they learn, as do few. This is time of war, Endreth, and in such days the elves do not wed or bear child, but prepare for death or for flight. Ignor has no trust, nor have I, in this siege of Angband, that it will last long. And then what will become of this land? If his heart ruled, he would have wished to take thee and flee far away, east or south, forsaking his kin and thine. Love and loyalty hold him to his. What of thee to thine? Thou hast said thyself that there is no escape by flight within the bounds of the world. For one year, one day of the flame, I would have given all, kin, youth, and hope itself. Adoneth I am, said Andreth. Um, speak of neither to me I desire neither and then what she says emphasizes she's like here is all I can see right all I can see is this gap we were both young we were both young and we loved each other 
I am now old and lost, and he is young still. Do candles pity moths? Now she feels that she was a moth burning herself up in the flame of a candle, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, notice how she feels herself to be the small and, well, I was going to say disposable, but that's not quite right. Uh, the small and fragile thing, right? Easily destroyed thing. But of course, Finrod's response is wonderful. Or Moth's candles, when the wind blows them out. Um, it is true that a candle might be more enduring than a moth in some way, or at least appear so, right? But candles are fragile as well. Um, and what he's... The... the um, the yeah, and David, I agree with you. David Atley says his rejoinder feels quite sharp. Yes, uh, and with reason, right? She, very understandably, as a consequence of her own suffering, is thinking only of herself, right? Her image, her metaphor of the candle and the moth betrays the fact that she basically believes that uh, Ignor doesn't obviously doesn't care, right? Um, she's going to come in and in trying to join with him is going to be destroyed. And do candles pity moths, right? The candle's just going to keep burning on, right? The moth has been destroyed and the candle doesn't even notice, right? That's how she, what she assumes, right? That's what she looks at it. And he does have a very sharp response to this because he knows different, right? He says to her, Adeneth, you are going to outlive him. You're going to outlive him. And she does outlive him. I tell thee, Iconar the sharp flame loved thee. For thy sake now he will never take the hand of any bride of his own kindred, but live alone to the end, remembering the morning in the hills of Dorthonian. Because of his love for you, he will never marry, ever. He's going to now spend millennia for the rest of Arda loving you and remembering you after you're gone. Tell me, who is the object of pity, you or him? And more. Too soon in the north wind, his flame will go out. Foresight is given to the Eldar in many things not far off, though seldom of joy. That's a very interesting thing in itself. Thou shalt live long in the order of your kind, and he will go before thee, and he will not wish to return. Ignor is going to go to Mandos and will never leave it. Ignor will never return to his body. He will be un he will be a houseless Fea in the halls of Mandos, hopefully, for the rest of Arda. He will be living a purgatorial existence, essentially, 
for millennia and millennia to come as a consequence of his love for you. So don't you sit there thinking that you're the victim here, that you're the only one that suffers as a consequence, that, you know, the two of you came together and you've been burned and you're lost and he's going merrily on his way and hasn't even been affected in any way. What can hit me? There he is still young, right? Um, uh, that is a remarkable rebuttal. Um, it's not a cheerful thing, right? Um, take heart, Andreth. Uh, the uh, uh, it's it's at least as tragic for him as it is for you. Um, that's not necessarily comforting. Um, yeah, Jennifer says Mandos is building up an interesting crowd of permanent residents. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've got Ignor, we've got Feanor. Uh, well, we have uh, I, Finway in the end, right? Uh, after Muriel gets out on probation. Eventually. Nancy also points out that don't worry, the man you love is going to die before you is also not comforting. <laughs> no, and he's not trying to comfort her here. Um, what he is trying to do, and this comes back, I think, uh, to, um, uh, uh, David, your perception that uh, his rejoinder is, is quite sharp. Um, what he is da- basically doing is saying, stop pitying yourself. Uh, like, you, you, you want to stop speaking about pity? No, let's not stop speaking about pity. Let's instead go beyond you just pitying yourself and beginning to think about how you actually should be pitying him, not thinking you've been done down by him, but actually pitying him as well. Um, to uh, So it's, it's certainly not meant to be comforting, Nancy, um, but I think it is meant to kind of shock her out of thinking about herself as the only victim here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and she says that, and her question is a totally sensible rejoinder. Again, I come back, um, I forget which one of you was talking about this. Um, it made me, uh, bring up Aldarion and Arendis, but, uh, the way in which he can, uh, Tolkien presents an argument and like whenever whoever is speaking sounds like completely convincing, right? He's able to really kind of invest himself in both sides. Her response, that's a, that's a really powerful, uh, stirring response uh, by Finrod. And, but her response is really good too. Then why did he turn away? Why leave me when I still had a few good years to spend? I mean, for crying out loud, if we are only going to have the same lifespan in the end, why wouldn't we spend it together? Come on. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. We had this time. We had decades in which we could have been happy together. And is it going to end happily? Okay, fine. No, it's not going to end happily. But it's not going to end happily now. And yet, so it's like we, we can either have a tragic ending with zero years of happiness or a tragic ending after multiple years of happiness, which is worse. Come on. And that's... um, uh, That's fine. Um, And his only answer is he can't. Or almost can't. Um, This is time of war, and in such days the elves do not wed or bear child, but prepare for death or for flight. 
um, he is preparing for death. He is preparing for death or flight. Um, he can't. He can't. Um, now, Arthur, you're asking about how elves develop this tradition of not wedding or reproducing during times of war when war is a relatively new thing. Um, well, to some extent, that doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be a tradition. I don't think it is a tradition in that sense. Tradition in the sense of, well, we've always done it this way, right? Um, we never have married during time of war. That would, you know, we always, we decided a long time ago that that was awkward and we've held this tradition ever since. It's not that kind of tradition. It's not even a tradition. Uh, that's not how he describes it. Um, nor is it really how Tolkien described it when he described it back in the laws and customs among the Eldar. Um, uh, Eldar have one kind and ye another, and each judges the other by themselves until they learn, as do few. In other words, you are thinking, and I'm not, I'm not leaving it behind Arthur, I'm just contextualizing it here. Um, in other words, you're thinking like a human here, and you're projecting human ways of thinking and feeling onto him. It is ab it is stereotypical. Carpe diem is the stereotypical human point of view, right? Absolutely. Like if our time is limited, since our time is limited anyway, let's make the most of the time that we have. Um, a completely sensible thing for a human being to say, but that is not carpe diem. Is not how the elves roll. They are not wired that way. They don't work that way. Um, it doesn't happen. Okay. Um, they, and this is where, again, so Arthur's and me coming back to it now. Again, it's not a tradition in the sense of a long established custom, um, a long established usage. Um, it's not about that. It's, this is how the Elvish fair expresses itself. Um, just as Again, the things in the laws and customs among the Eldar, the title of which, by the way, seems to me a misnomer. Um, what laws? There are very few laws listed there. Like somebody passed a law to say that this is illegal. Right. I mean, in a sense, when he talks about the laws and customs among the Eldar, uh, he's using the word law. It seems to me almost like you would say the laws of nature. Right. Like gravity and such. Exactly, Michael. It's natural law. That's exactly it. Um, um, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so they, uh, um, they, they, I, this is just, this is how they get the tendency of like the, the Elvish marriage stuff, which was of course, as you remember, the enormous dominant, um, uh, portion of the, I mean, there were some other things that were discussed in laws and customs among the Eldar, but stuff about marriage and children was the majority of what he talked about, right? And when he's talking about all that that wedding stuff, again, he's not talking. It's not none of it is a law in the sense of something a decree that's passed by an authority figure and which they all agree to obey, right? It's not that at all. Nobody tells them this stuff. It's instead just a description of 
how they do, in fact, think and what they and how things work, how things are. Again, more like natural laws, more like gravity than like, uh, um, you know, a a customary usage, as I say, which you might decide to comply with and might decide to depart from. Um, it would be a pretty major violation. Um, now, David, I do agree with you um, when he is saying uh, each judges the others by themselves until they learn, as do few. He is partially saying, Andreth, you're thinking like a human and you're not even you're, you're making an assumption, a human. A, 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 you know, you're making an anthropocentric assumption, which doesn't apply to the Quendi. But I agree with you, David, that he is also perhaps telling her that Ignor also was making a quendicentric, <laughs> uh, quendicentric, I suppose, would be sufficient. A quendicentric assumption, um, and probably not thinking that she would even want that, right? Um, that she, you know, I, that he also just she doesn't understand. She doesn't understand why he left, and he might not understand why she's so upset that he left, right? Um, I mean, both would be sad because they can't be together now because it's a time of war, right? Um, but um, uh, anyway, yeah, yeah, I agree. Pity between elves and men does seem easier than sympathy or empathy, rather. Yes, yes. Um, uh, anyway, so so yes, I do think that that worked both ways, and I do think that he's suggesting that there. So again, when he's describing that, he's not talking about a tradition. He's talking about this is this is how we're wired this is how it works it's about how their fea and roa is like how their how the fear and roa of the elves are joined together like how this organism operates right they can't just as they um they don't like they don't experience like promiscuity right they don't just they don't like they uh they have they are joined to their spouse and, you know, for an elf to, uh, you know, want to commit adultery is bizarre. Like, it's, it's, it's like a deviation from the natural law. Um, uh, it is, in that sense, much more like a just a, a strange and inexplicable perversion in the elves uh, than it is some kind of natural impulse that needs to be uh, sort of reined in or maintained. Um but um, uh, anyway, um, the uh, yeah, so no, this is just this is this is how they are. It's how they are. Um, he's preparing for death. He's in preparing for death mode, not in wedding and bearing children mode. And he can't turn his fea to the other. Um, there was only one option. The only option, the only way that they could have been together uh, over these last decades is if he had given into a desire of his heart to take her and flee far away, east or south, forsaking his kin and thine. Um, by the way, notice the pronouns. He's shifted to the all the way through here, right? I say to thee, thou shalt live long. He will go forth before thee. 
the truth will not satisfy thee. He is speaking again as to her as a peer, as a friend, as a sister, not formally, as the ambassador of her people. Right? He's not youing her anymore. He's theeing her throughout this passage here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I hear you, Korea. Korea says, you know, did... Did I ignore try talking to her <laughs> about this, maybe? I don't know, Karina. I mean, we don't get any details about how the relationship went down and exactly, like, how the departure happened. Uh, it's maybe they did talk and, and they were just not, you know, um, uh, you know, she didn't get it and he didn't get it. And, you know, they kind of were, you know. I agree to disagree. You know, I, I'm not really sure how that went down, but I, 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 I do feel like I kind of want to give I ignore the benefit of the doubt uh, until we know for sure that he was, um, uh, you know, that he was like sort of mistreating her there. Um, but um, I, so uh, on the question on the Twitch channel, really excellent question from Giant98. And this is a really hard one to answer, by the way. Um, is it significant that the only human elvish unions that we have are with male humans and female elves? Um, yes. <laughs> yes, it's significant. Exactly what is that significance? I'm not sure. Or Giant98, let me go one step further and say, I think... It can't be a coincidence that this tragically unhappy relationship um, is is switched, right? Female human and male elf. Um, that seems to me conspicuous. Now, on the one hand, notice what we've been seeing. I mean, remember what we've been noticing throughout this, uh, the, the later Quenta material. Tolkien has been going well out of his way to bring in more female stories, uh, more female characters. Um, and so perhaps it's merely the only explanation for that. The difference here is that he wanted to explore this from the other side because he'd already explored the other one um, and he wanted to 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 give a chance and this one was uh, you know was tragic um, but um, uh, yeah Bruce I agree Bruce says I think all the successful elf human pairings are echoes of Luthien and Baron I certainly agree in the sense that I do think that Luthien and Baron um, Luthien and Baron are the archetypal elf human union um and yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, it's there's a lot there. Here's my here's my concern. We have very few details as far as a narrative is concerned. Like we don't really get the story of Andreth and Ignor, right? He doesn't write the narrative of Andreth and Ignor. And so therefore there's not much to compare and contrast between the two. Given the lack of detail to compare and contrast, um, since all we have is the comparing and contrasting like overall frameworks, um, 
I perceive in myself how easy it would be to start overgeneralizing, to start making very, um, very general, like, uh, you know, uh, either gender based conclusions, drawing gender based conclusions about, you know, uh, about Tolkien's perspective here or and that feels to me sloppy. There's not enough. There's not enough here. Um, yeah. So I'm, I, I, I don't, I don't think we have enough to sort of generalize in that way. Um, but I do think it is interesting. I do think it is significant that this, let me come at this in another way. When he is trying to capture this, right, this feeling of futility, because, of course, it must have happened many times, must have. There must have been many instances. If we imagine, you know, the world of the first age and later, right, as uh, uh, as Tolkien describes it, there have to have been lots of times when humans have fallen in love with elves. And maybe elves with humans, but at least humans with elves, right? That's got to happen. That's got to happen, like, on the regular. Um, and yet, most of the time, that will have had a tragic ending. Almost all the time, that has a tragic ending. So much so that when it doesn't, it's a shocking, amazing eucatastrophe, like Luthien turning and putting her hand in Baron's. Um, that... Um, uh so it's it's but he never deals with that dynamic almost never right we almost never get do we ever get do we get any other romance in any of the silmarillion tradition ironically the only other pairing that i can immediately think of is an elf pining after a human unrequitedly. Uh, that is Finduilus and Turin. Um, yeah, Imrahil's parents, I don't count. Um, first of all, we don't even know that he's invented that story yet. Uh, and second, I think the date on that is late um, when he finally writes some material there. But honestly, when he does write that material, it's not like it's exactly one of your great love stories. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't even really count that one. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, anyway, um, but again, it's just, it's interesting to me that he's never dealt with the question. It's had, it has to have happened, right? I mean, there have to, for, for every one Baron and Luthien, there have to have been dozens, hundreds of humans who found themselves in a similar situation and that is, you know, coming across an elf maiden dancing in the woods, right? Like you do and uh, falling hopelessly in love and, uh, you know, having your life destroyed or yourself destroyed or, I mean, uh, getting struck dead or something like that. Um, It's usually not good. There are lots of fairy tales about men who... Uh, see elf maids dancing in the woods and leap out to 
uh, you know, say hi and introduce themselves politely or impolitely and, uh, you know, get stricken some way or other, right? Um, uh, that often happens um, in fairy tales. Uh, that's a, that is a not uncommon fairy tale trope. Um, and yet we only get it happening the one time in the Silmarillion, and it's the one time when it works out, right? Shockingly, amazingly. Um, so it's very possible that he just wanted to deal with what happens the other way around, right? And he chose to invest not in yet another male character, but in a female character. He could have had Finrod talking with a dude, right? With a human male who had fallen in love with somebody. Galadriel, maybe, right? That could happen, right? Not hard to see that. Um, but um, uh, anyway, um, yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. She says, for one day of the flame, I would have given all kin, youth, and hope itself. Adeneth I am. Woman of man. Human woman. Um, in order for him to have loved her, to have reciprocated her love, uh, in order for the two of them to have been together for those decades that they had, they could have had, um, he would have had to take her and flee far away, east or south, forsaking his kin and thine. Um, he would have had to abandon all that he knows he should be doing, uh, leave his family to the war, um, go away and pretend the war is not happening, go to somewhere where the war isn't happening, only because he has fled, only because he has abandoned his duty and his kin. Um, and uh, um, yeah, you know, and that um, has uh, that was not able to was not able to happen. Yeah, Brio is kind of thinking of Gimli there, right? Now Gimli uh, is in a you know he's in a kind of a different place, but we see what happens to Gimli, right? I mean, like, come on, you got to know that there are a certain number of mortals who had and and like, look, let's face it, um, she makes a pretty strong impression on Sam too, doesn't she? Right? On all of them, really. Uh, so, yeah, like, it's got to happen. It's got to have happened. Um, yeah, and David, I do agree with you. Uh, David asks if we're supposed to hear um, an unasked question there. Would you still have loved him if he had done so? Had he abandoned everything? Had he backed out of everything? Had he shamed himself and chosen your love instead of his duty and... Uh, his kin and what he knows to be right. Was that what you would have wanted? And David, I think she's responding to his uh, implied question by saying, had he asked, I would have said yes. Right? Um, which is both an answer and not an answer. Right? That he knew, said Finrod. And he withdrew and did not grasp what lay to his hand. Elda he is. For such barters are paid for in anguish that cannot be guessed until it comes, 
and in ignorance rather than in courage, the Eldar judge that they are made. Nay, Adonath, if any marriage can be between our kindred and thine, then it shall be for some high purpose of doom. Brief it will be, and hard at the end. Yea, the last, yea, the least cruel fate that could befall would be that death should soon end it. But the end is always cruel for men, said Andreth. I would not have troubled him when my short youth was spent. I would not have hobbled as a hag after his bright feet when I could no longer run beside him. Maybe not, said Finrod. So you feel now. But do you think of him? He would not have run before thee. He would have stayed at thy side to uphold thee. Then pity thou wouldst have had in every hour, pity inescapable. He would not have thee so shamed. Pity inescapable. Then pity wouldst thou wouldst have had in every hour, pity inescapable. Um, Nancy, exactly. So this is really about Baron and Luthien after all. Of course it is. Everything's about Baron and Luthien in the end. Um, it is the central story that Tolkien ever wrote. It's the center of all of his stories. Um, and not just because of the biographical thing. This is one of the reasons why I, I get a little bit grumpy sometimes when people want to harp on the uh, the you know, the business with Edith. Of course that's important. Does that matter? Yes, of course that matters. But it's not for that reason that it was the most important story that he ever wrote. Um, that's a bonus, a big bonus, I grant. But that is not, it, it. were it not so, did I not know that their names, Baron and Luthien, were on his and his wife's tombstone, I would still say that the Baron and Luthien story is the most important story that he ever wrote, and I think that you could see it from within his writings themselves, even if you did not know one blessed thing about his biography at all. Um, um, anyway, but back to Finrod's immediate response. She says, I would have said yes. And he says, yeah, he knew that. That's why he left. He left you because he knew that you would make that choice. And he was tempted to make that choice too, right? But Elda, he is. Such barters are paid for. Like to barter honor for a year of pleasure, right? You know, she he's referring back to what she had just said, right? Um uh, for one year, one day of the flame, I would have given all kin, youth, and hope itself. That's the barter he's referring to, right? That kind of barter, such barters are paid for in anguish that cannot be guessed until it comes. You say that, right? And you believe that that would be the case, right? You believe that you would really rather, looking back on it, you would rather have had Ignore for a year or a day than your kin, your honor, your, uh, uh, your, your hope, right? But those barters end in anguish. Anguish that cannot be guessed. And 
in ignorance rather than in courage, the Eldar judge that they are made. You're only saying that because you haven't done it. Had you done it, you would regret it. Um, everybody who does it eventually regrets it. Uh, but it doesn't look like it on the other side. You can only learn that by experience. But again, I can't help but hear, hear also a... Uh, uh, I can't help but hear also an echo of what he was saying before. Again, you're only thinking of yourself. Okay, you would sacrifice all these things to have him and then die, right? And then what? Right. What about him? He has to pay for it with anguish, which won't end. Right. Anguish, which he will be living in, reliving in memory for hundreds of millennia to come. Right. That's what you want for him. He has regret now. But what's he going to have now? Okay, he's going to. Abandon. He's going to die soon, and he's not going to return to a new Hroa. He's going to remain in the halls of Mandos for the rest of Arda, but he'll always have Dorthonian, right? That memory of the morning in Dorthonian um, and his memory of meeting her and of their brief time together when they fell in love with each other, he'll always have that in memory. And now, although there might be regret not this kind of regret. It's going to be an untainted memory for him. So it's tragic, still tragic, but this would be far more tragic for both of them, but especially for him. Um, so in a sense, in a sense, he's accusing her of being a little bit selfish here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Julie, I was thinking about that. Julie is, uh, remembering Dr. Who saying you can spend the rest of your life with me, but I can't spend the rest of mine with you. Yeah, exactly. And of course, Julie, as soon as I heard, uh, the doctor say that I was immediately thinking about Andreth and Eichnor, uh, and, uh, you know, the, just, just thinking about how, uh, the, the ways, I mean, it's, it's interesting the ways in which, uh, it's actually one of my, one of the, the little motifs that I'm kind of interested in uh, in watching Doctor Who and how that plays out is especially the way they handle uh, the Doctor's relationship with the companions in the uh, in, in, in the new Who, especially. Um, are a little bit more thoughtful about the relationship with the companions and develop the companions a little bit more and the relationship a little bit more than they did in the old days. Um, and... Um, Anyway, it's, it's it's interesting to see them kind of uh, working through this exact same uh, kind of dynamic and what they do with it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, let's see. Um, now, Cecilia, I agree with you. Um, and this Cecilia is, I, I, just, I don't know if you're meaning to do this, but it's reminding me, Carita, of what you said before. Like, didn't he try talking this out with her at all? Um, I, you know, did he explain this? Like, you know, Cecilia is saying she didn't even know this, right? How would, uh, how can she not think of herself if that's all like 
the only perspective she's got, right? She doesn't know what his perspective is and how this works for them. Um, agreed, agreed. Um, that would seem to be one of the um, uh, one of the reasons that uh, Finrod is explaining this stuff, right? To try to help her to understand. Um, this seems to be a big reason for the conversation in the first place. He's known all along what her bitterness is. He's known all along why she's so upset. Um, and uh, he is um, uh, finally coming around explicitly to addressing it. Um, yeah, we do. What we have here is a failure to communicate, Josiah, and a failure to empathize, a failure even to understand how much need there was for communication um, uh, in some ways. Yeah, a failure to imagine, uh, Michael. That's, a, that's an interesting way to think about it. Um, but again, we can see Andreth has a really hard time with this. She has a really hard time getting past her perspective and her own bitterness. I would not have troubled him when my short youth was spent. I would not have hobbled as a hag after his bright feet when I could no longer run beside him. Um, I wouldn't have hampered him long, right? I would have let him go eventually. It's like, you don't get, that's not how it works with elves, right? As it is, he's never going to marry. Um, even if he had lived, even if he did come back, he would not marry anybody um, because he's his heart is married to her already, even though they can't be together. Um, uh, but, so yeah, she's like, it's okay. I don't let him go. Andreth, no, it would not have worked. Um, and what would have been the result? He would have stayed at thy side. Then thou wouldst have had in every hour. Pity then thou wouldst, thou wouldst have had in every hour. Pity inescapable. He could not have escaped the pity. She could not escape the pity, right? Pity would have become the primary dynamic of their relationship, inevitably, had that happened. Andreth, Adeneth, the life and love of the Eldar dwells much in memory, and we, if not ye, would rather have a memory that is fair but unfinished than one that goes on to a grievous end. Now he will ever remember thee in the sun of morning, and that last evening by the water of Eiluin, in which he saw thy face mirrored with a star caught in thy hair, ever until the north wind brings the night of his flame. Yea, and after that, sitting in the house of Mandos, in the halls of awaiting, until the end of Arda. And what shall I remember? said she. And when I go, to what halls shall I come? To a darkness in which even the memory of the sharp flame shall be quenched? Even the memory of rejection, that at least. This, we are coming to what I think is the most amazing thing about the Athrobeth, which is the ending, which is Tolkien's resistance to giving this a happy ending. He could have her come around. He could end this with her being like, gee golly, Finrod, I never thought about it that way, right? 
you're right, I've been selfish. I'm going to change the way. In fact, I'm going to apply some of the conversation we had before about metaphysics and think about my relationship in that context and take new hope in that light. Right? I mean, let me tell you, if I'd been writing this, that's totally what I would have done. Right? I would have had her have this moment where she was like, oh, now I see. Oh, now my own heart is full of pity and I shall, you know, go forth in hope and whatever. Like, I totally would have done that, right? Absolutely would have done that. Um, but she doesn't, right? Um, she doesn't. Um, when I, and when I go, to what halls shall I come? To a darkness in which even the memory of the sharp flame shall be quenched? Even the memory of rejection that at least. The last hope, and it's Amdir, not Estelle, right? Her last piece of Amdir is hoping for oblivion, hoping that she will forget. I'm glad he has his memory unperishable. Um, what am I going to... He gets the halls of Mandos, and to hold on to this memory, you know, until the end of Arda. Great. What do I get? Darkness. What halls do I go to? Um, maybe, if I'm lucky, halls of darkness in which the sharp flame of, re of the memory of rejection will be quenched. She doesn't get it. She refuses to get it. Right? She won't let it go. She won't let her own bitterness go. And notice what she fa she's failing in, in Estelle here explicitly in Estelle, imagining after their whole conversation, her heart was stirred at hearing Finrod's words. She was, for a time in that conversation, entertaining the idea of the hope that he was describing, the hope that brought hope to him, to Finrod, I mean. And now... Remember, she said before, I never said it was my hope. And now we see her still resistant to it at the end. Seeking comfort, cold comfort, in the quenching of the memory of rejection after death. It's the only Amdir that she can see. Because she isn't holding on to Estelle. And it's powerful powerful to see the choice that she's making. Sad, right? It's, I, I feel nothing but pity for Andreth here. I don't feel, I, I don't like, I don't feel scorn for her. I don't feel appalled by her. I feel nothing but pity for her because I can hear, in every line, I can hear the wound, right? I can heal, hear the hurt which is leading her to this place, which is making that hope very difficult for her, right? And she won't take it. She won't accept it. Um, and we can see it, right? We can see... Uh, we can see the alternative, right? We can see the alternative. Um, no. So, Jocelyn, I see what you mean. 
in saying that the elves here seem to be, if she's being selfish and thinking only of her point of view, so are they in thinking only of their point of view. I don't think that Finrod is being selfish. I think he is showing compassion to her. He is trying to help her to understand the Ignor side of things, right? Um, he's trying to contextualize what happened and help her to understand that so that she can see beyond her own sorrow. Um, but I don't think it's true that he can't see beyond that. He can. That's why he's trying to reach out to her. And what's more, he can see, he saw before the way in which it's not just that Andreth personally could, her own pity for him could extend beyond, could help her to extend beyond her own, uh, her own, you know, the, the, the sort of shell that her hurt has built around her, right? Which is a real thing. Uh, for her here, and Finrod recognizes that and speaks to her very gently about that. Um, but this is a path. This is a you know. This is this is an opportunity for her to reach out past that, and she declines to take it. Um, where this puts me as a reader again, I find uh, it's sobering, but it's also and it's tantalizing, um, but. To me, it it is so much more powerful. The impulse, right, to like reach out to Andreth and say, "But wait, but Andreth, Estelle, Estelle, don't forget Estelle. There is still Estelle. You said it that there was Estelle. You described what the Estelle is, right? Um, the way that I feel like wanting to reach out to her with that is so much more powerful than just seeing her do that. Just being like." But I guess there's still Estelle. Maybe I'll feel better about this, right? That would be so much less satisfying uh, a response. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it certainly, it certainly does enable us to connect with it in many different ways, uh, Matt. We can certainly... We can certainly empathize with it. And, of course, that's the other thing, right? Our own pity, our own empathy is being challenged here, right? Um, in both directions. I know that some of you are feeling negative towards Finrod and Ignor in this. Well, that your pity is being challenged as well, right? Um, for those who just feel frustrated at Andreth and say, she's still being so selfish. Why is she, um, why should she still lose herself in this despair? Your pity is being challenged, right? Um, I really think that's a big part of what's happening here. Look at his reaction. When she does, when she goes there, you know, my only destiny is a darkness in which hopefully I will, the memory of my rejection will be quenched. Finrod sighed and stood up. The Eldar have no healing words for such thoughts, Adeneth, he said. But would you wish that elves and men had never met? Is the light of the flame, which otherwise you would never have seen, of no worth even now? Do you believe yourself scorned? Put away at least that thought, which comes out of the darkness, and then our speech together will not have been wholly in vain. Farewell. He doesn't push it. He doesn't say, but Estelle, come on, make with the Estelle, <laughs> Andreth, right? He doesn't, he doesn't go there. Um, he urges her against 
though I don't think you're self-scorned, right? Um, though notice again what he says about the flame here. Would you wish that elves and men had never met? Is the light of the flame, which otherwise you would never have seen, of no worth even now? Okay, no, so memory doesn't work the same for humans as it does for elves. But is the memory of that not worth anything to you? Is it still, is it really, would you really prefer to have never met him at all? Um, is, is that actually better than, uh, you know, than having known him, having loved him, having received his love, and then losing him? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, that's really interesting. Josiah is reminded of the very end of the book of the prophet Jonah, um, uh, ending with God's question about whether or not he shouldn't, whether he shouldn't have had pity uh, on uh, on Nineveh. It's, it's interesting. Um, uh, anyway, um, put away at least that thought. Don't think yourself scorned. That thought comes out of the darkness. Darkness fell in the room. He took her hand in the light of the fire. Whither go you, she said. North away, he said, to the swords and the siege and the walls of defense, that yet for a while in Beleriand rivers may run clean, leaves spring, and birds build their nests ere night comes. Will he be there? bright and tall, and the wind in his hair? Tell him. Tell him not to be reckless, not to seek danger beyond need. I will tell him, said Finrod, but I might as well tell thee not to weep. He is a warrior, Endreth, and a spirit of wrath. In every stroke that he deals, he sees the enemy who long ago did thee this hurt. But you are not for Arda. Whither you go, you may find light. Await us there, my brother and me. That last line always gets me. Await us there. His final words to Andrath are expressions he ends by expressing his own Estelle. You are not for Arda. Whatever you believe... You th if you, even if you've convinced yourself, even if you feel that there's nothing before you but darkness which might quench your painful memories, you're not for Arda. You're going somewhere else, and you might find light there. May you find, where, whither you go, may you find light. He is blessing her with that. Await us there, my brother and me. Someday, in Arda Remade, in Arda Healed, these things will come together again. You and I will meet again. You and my brother will meet again, right? Where you have gone before, when you are those who are at home and we will be the visitors, right? We will be the outsiders to there. Um, it's... Uh, just amazing. Um, uh, yeah, Josiah, I agree. Easily one of Tolkien's best final lines. Oh my goodness. Yes. 
Yes. Um, the end of Leaf by Niggle is pretty good too, but that's uh, yeah, an amazing final line. An amazing final line. Um, she of course is not just wrapped up in herself. Uh, she is still thinking of him. Um, I do read her um, asking after him and urging him not to seek danger beyond need as you know obviously she still loves him um she is still thinking of him she's not only um you know she's not only thinking uh, thinking of herself um and her you know she, she she's not really just focused inwards on herself completely um interesting finrod's response it's not going to happen right he's he is I can't tell you not to weep. I can't tell you just to be like, hey, just stop being sad. Because it's who she is. It's what she is, right? Um, she wouldn't be a wise woman if she didn't perceive the problem here, right? Um, uh, it is because she is who she is and that she is as wise as she is that she sees the problem um, and weeps about it. Um, uh, he is who he is, right? Um, he can't not be reckless. Um, and I love how he turns that in the end. In every stroke that he deals, he sees the enemy who long ago did thee this hurt. Um, he knows that Morgoth has damaged humans. Uh, and he is fighting for your sake. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, Cecilia, I agree. Uh, he, Finrod acknowledges the hurt that he didn't understand before that the enemy did, right? And uh, it's almost as if, Cecilia, Finrod is here understanding his own brother a little bit better, right? Um, he, Ignor seems to have had at least some kind of... Finrod had never even heard before of this idea that humans believed themselves to be, um, uh, you know, believed themselves to be immortal previously, right? And that they were deprived of immortality. This is new on him, right? Um, did Ignor know that? Or even if he didn't, did he just have... Um, was Ignor's closer bond with Andrath, like his closer bond with a human, did it help him to understand in some, even just some intuitive way, that they, that humans had been marked, had been damaged, the shadow that lay on their past? Um, did he understand that better in some sense? Uh, and so that has been, now he, Finrod, is understanding why Ignor is the spirit of wrath that he is, why he is... Um, you know, determined to fight in part. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and good, Kimber, you're right. Notice how he switches back to you at the very end there. But you are not for Arda. Whither you go, you may find light. Um, on the one hand, you could say he's using that in the plural, right? You humans are not for Arda, and whither you humans go, you, may you find light. Um, but I don't think so. I think that he is, his final address to her, he shifts away from the personal and the tender, and uh, which he was just doing, I might as well tell thee not to weep, right? Um, who did thee this hurt? 
but you are not for Arda. Whither you go, may you find light. Um, he, uh, yeah, he closes in full respect mode. Yes, exactly. Um, he is not allowing his pity for her to ooze over towards the pride side of things, right? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree, Marianne. I, I, I do think it is that expression of respect that he's giving her there at the very end. Um, the way in which this whole thing turns on its head the metaphysics of elf-human relationships, right? The way that he takes the elvish characterization of humans as the aftercomers um, and turns that absolutely on its head that now fin Finrod understands they're not the ones that came that come after. They're the ones that are going before. right? They're the ones that are preparing the path and we shall come after them. Um, that is such an incredible and profound irony um, that I find it just mind-blowing, really, because it's something that um, goes all the way back. Um, uh, the, the, you know, it's the same thing that goes all the way back to uh, um, uh, to like through through the whole rest of the mythology. Now, Tomas says, uh, while it has been established that elves fall in love only once and they remain in love with the same person for the rest of their lives, the same is not the case for humans when love is not consummated. That's true. Uh, notice how Finrod didn't say that, <laughs> right? He is very polite about that. I mean, and remember how that fits with the psychological observations that he was making about humans, right? How their joy always fades. Right. I mean, he could have said he didn't say, but he could have said, you know, even consummated love, you know, kind of pales among humans after a while. Right. It's not just that they, you know, are uh, like lascivious and, and constantly chasing after somebody else, even though they fall in love with one person. It's not even it's not that just that they're inconstant. Right. It's that all things fade. All joy fades within them here uh, that, you know, they um uh, that just like even if love is perfectly consummated, it'll still eventually wear out in humans like stuff does wear out in humans. Right. Does he go there? No, nope. he doesn't go there. He doesn't talk about that at all. Um, it could be talked about. Right. It is definitely another um, major difference between another thing which would make an elvish human long term relationship, by which I mean by which I had in mind even longer than the span of the human's life. Awkward, right? Um, but um, but he doesn't go there. He doesn't talk about that. Um, okay. I want to begin the commentary. We're not going to get too far into it, um, but I wanted to at least begin it. Um, I'm not going to take too long on it, but I did want to talk about it um, because at the very least... Uh, I want to address the, what it is, because I don't get it. Here's Tolkien explaining what he's doing. This is not presented as an argument of any cogency for men in their present situation, or the one in which they believe themselves to be, 
though it may have some interest for men who start with similar beliefs or assumptions to those held by the elvish king Finrod. It is, in fact, simply part of the portrayal of the imaginary world of the Silmarillion, and an example of the kind of thing that inquiring minds on either side, the elvish or the human, must have said to one another after they became acquainted. We see here the attempt of a generous elvish mind to fathom the relations of elves and men, and the part they were designed to play in what he would have called the Oyankarme Eruo, the one's perpetual production, which might be rendered by God's management of the drama. Okay. Um, who is he talking to? And who's talking? I don't get it. This commentary I don't get. I need help. I don't get it. Um, this is not presented as an argument of any cogency for men in their present situation. Present? What present? Our present? 20th century? He's talking about 20th century men? Or is this within a fictional... Is this within the fictional frame? Is this Bilbo speaking? Or is this Alfwina speaking? Or is this Frodo speaking? Or what? Or is this Findigil King's writer? Who's talking here? And so what is the frame? What is the present situation? Though it may have some interest for men who start with similar beliefs or assumptions to those held by the elvish king Finrod. Okay. Uh, present within the story? You think, Michael? Maybe? Again, wh then when is the present? Not the time of Finrod, certainly. Right? Because this commentary is looking back on that whole thing from quite a distance. But how far distance? End of Third Age distance? Or Anglo-Saxon period difference? Distance? Like Alfwina? Or 20th century Oxford? Distance? Josiah, I agree. Uh part of the betrayal of the imaginary world of the Silmarillion. The imaginary world of the Silmarillion certainly sounds like Tolkien himself. Um, and I agree, this does seem to have the same kind of tone that we see in, like, the letter to Milton Waldman, right? Like a letter, And that seems to be part of... We'll come back to this uh, when we look at the next slide, too. Um, but, uh, you know, I get from the start, I'm like, why are we, why is he doing this? What's he explaining? So part of this, I have to think, given the explanations that he gives, um, given the explanations he gives in the body of this commentary, it seems like he's explaining this to somebody who's not read the Silmarillion. Mostly, right? Um, so it begins to sound kind of like, where the Silmarillion started, which was, remember, he in the Silmarillion, Silmarillion began, like the modern Silmarillion began when he wanted to send out the lay of the children, the alliterative lay of the children of Hurin uh, to a friend, right, to a colleague to read. But he felt like he had to give a little bit of background 
right? Like with, if you just kind of jump into the children of Hurin, it's kind of not going to make much sense because it relies upon an earlier plot. So he started writing a plot summary of, you know, the events of the Silmarillion. And that's what the Silmarillion is, right? That was the original sketch of the mythology, as he called it, back in, what was it, 1928, 1926, somewhere back in the late 20s, right? Um, and then he revised that, and that became the Quentin Olderinwa, and that became the Quentin Silmarillion. So this whole, like, uh, you know, historical annal um, uh, paraphrase thing was originally just him summarizing uh, for a colleague in order to contextualize the thing that they were reading, right? Um and uh, um, so, okay, so this sounds like the meat of the commentary sounds like it's designed to, like he's going to give the Atherbeth to somebody to read who probably has not read the Silmarillion stuff. And so he has to explain. Um, but there's some interesting elements in it here. Um that are tricky. Um, yeah, Kimber, I agree. There are places where it's not clear whether it's a, a frame narrator uh, or a contemporary to Tolkien narrator. Um, one last two quick points on the second paragraph there. First, notice how he says... This is not just a bunch of philosophy dressed up and like where he threw in a love interest to, you know, kind of spice it up a bit. Right. No, no, that's the whole point. The whole point of this story is. The encounter to describe the encounter of a human and an elf. Right. Um, the, the encounter of two minds of the elvish mind and the human mind. Right. And to bring them together. Um, that's that's what the point of this is. Um, now, I don't believe that. <laughs> Given what we've been reading, I don't believe that. I do think that he is working out the things. Uh, but again, it's, you know, this certainly becomes the story that he's writing here does become essential to it. Um, it's, it's clearly not what motivated it originally. Right. He was already working towards this, as we saw um, at the end of the, uh, the, the last set of material, the, the, the you know, the, uh, the, the later Quintus stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Here's another passage that struck me as interesting. The existence of the Valar. So he's glossing that phrase. That is, of certain angelic beings, created but at least as powerful as the gods of human mythologies, the chief of whom still resided in an actual physical part of the earth. They were the agents and vicegerents of Eru, God. They had been for nameless ages engaged in a demiurgic labor, competing, completing to the design of Eru, the structure of the universe, Ea. But were now concentrated on Earth for the principal drama of creation, the war of the Eruhin, the children of God, elves and men, against Melkor. Melkor, originally the most powerful of the Valar, had become a rebel against his brethren and against Eru, and was the prime spirit of evil. Now, again... No reader of the Silmarillion needs this summary, right? So it seems pretty clear that this is designed uh, to um, uh, uh, this is designed to provide context, right? He has to explain from scratch who the Valar are, 
Right. By the way, I also wanted to give this because I found this a really fascinating summary of how he is envisioning this, especially now at this point. Like how, <clears throat> what is his, how does he describe in cold prose the role of the Valar um, from within the like metaphysical point of view, having worked out all the things that he's worked out, how would he describe it? Um, and this is a really interesting description. They had been for nameless ages engaged in a demiurgic labor, completing, completing to the design of Eru, the structure of the universe. Completing to the design of Eru, the structure of the universe. Um, also, that he characterizes the war of the Eruhin against Melkor as the principal drama of creation. The principal drama of creation. That puts the labor of the Valar in a very interesting position, does it not? It is tempting. From the Silmarillion tradition itself, it is tempting to say, as many people do say, as many people do feel, as Andreth certainly feels, that the Valar are basically out of it, right? The Valar stick to themselves over in Valinor. They don't particularly care. Um, they're leaving the, you know... They're over here. Melkor's over there. He's doing bad stuff, but whatever. There's only just a few peons over there, and most of them who are over there kind of deserve it anyway, because uh, they either didn't come over when we gave them a chance. They either didn't come over when they when we gave them a chance and stuck around, in which case it's their fault, or they went back when we had them over here in the first place, rebelling against us, which is totally their fault. Or third, they're human. Which is pretty much their fault too. So, um, anyway, like so, this again. This seems this is like some people seem to characterize the Valar this way. Like they just they just they're over there, and then Arendel comes over, and they're like, "Wait, what? Something's happening? Hey, let's do something about this, right? Yeah, we should care. Come to think of it, right? I mean, it's easy to kind of come away with that impression of the Valar uh, from the Silmarillion tradition, and yet, no. <laughs> Notice how that's not a. The whole drama of creation is the war of the Eruhin against Melkor. What's going on in Beleriand is not a sideshow. It's not something the Valar can't be bothered to pay attention to. Um, it, it, it's you know this is not something that they can't that they like refuse to interrupt their private cribbage games or whatever to bestir themselves to go over and pay attention to what's happening in Middle Earth. That is not the case. What is going on in Middle Earth is the principal drama of creation, which is the entire reason why the Valar are concentrated on Earth in the first place. They are here instead of somewhere else. They're on this planet instead of somewhere else in Ea because, which they could be, but they're not, because they are focused on the principal drama of creation, right? Which is... The war of the children of God, elves and men, against Melkor. So, are the Valar paying attention? Yeah, the Valar are paying attention. <laughs> Do the Valar care? Yes, the Valar care. Um, uh, so that that I was that's really interesting. I mean, the the way that he has reframed that um, to me almost excludes the possibility of imagining a completely standoffish and oblivious Valar, right? Are there things in the texts of the Silmarillion tradition that give us that impression? Yeah, of course. 
But you see, the people who wrote those texts were not correct about that. Anybody in Beleriand, anybody who experienced the first age in Beleriand could be excused for feeling that way, right? I mean, and who wrote the histories of that time? Folks who lived in Beleriand at that time, right? So look, I get it, man. Just like Finrod gets it, how Andreth feels, like it's you can get how Finrod would feel as well, right? All of them, elves and men alike, um, can be forgiven for misunderstanding and believing that the Valar are simply not paying attention. Um, the way that Tolkien is imagining the story now, as he has developed things here, that is plainly, manifestly, enormously, emphatically not the case. Um, the war against Melkor is the principal drama of creation with capital letters, right? Um, and the Valar, that's what they're here for. That's that's the entire, that is the show that they bought a ticket to when they descended into Ea in the first place, right? That's, this is the whole point of them. So, yes, I think they're paying attention. Um, so, David, what, David Erbach, what I see here is that this invites us not to, critique the Valar more harshly for not intervening, but to recontextualize they're not intervening. Um, there must be a very good reason why they waited until when they did to intervene and chose to intervene how and when and to the extent that they did. Um, yeah, that seems to me the necessary conclusion. By the way, I forgot something that I wanted to say here and I'll probably end with this. No, I definitely will end with this. Um, the Oyen Karme Eruo, uh, the one's perpetual production. Tolkien's characterization of creation, of the history of the world as the perpetual production of Eru. God's management of the drama um, is really, really interesting. I find it interesting. It's a really interesting sort of philosophical statement. If many are tempted to see the Valar as totally hands-off, many of them are even more tempted to see Eru as totally hands-off, right? Like he kind of sends his delegates and then lets them run the shop. No, not so much, right? He is... All of history is the perpetual act of creation. God didn't just create stuff and let it go. Uh, Tolkien's characterization here is that God is continuously managing the drama. Um, the, uh, the second thing that I find so fascinating about this, doesn't that also sound like a really good characterization of Tolkien's own writing process, right? Tolkien's sub-creation bears a striking resemblance to Eru's creation, I would say. Um, he is continually managing the drama. It's a perpetual production, right? Constantly discovering new things uh, rather than just, like, conceiving a thing and flopping it down there, right? Um, uh, and I kind of... Uh, I kind of love that, actually. I kind of love that parallel. I mean, his 
the concept of the the parallel between creation and subcreation is such an important idea of Tolkien's in the first place uh, that it's hardly a shocking parallel to establish, right? But um, but to see it really kind of go all the way down, right, uh, is uh, is really interesting. Exactly, God's perpetual retcon. That's that's the whole thing. Um, uh, <laughs> Josiah says that in addition to being a thoughtful way to describe providence, uh, the one's perpetual production <laughs> would be a great band name. I don't know. It's it sounds like a pretty bad Broadway musical to me. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. It sounds like a magic card. <laughs> uh, in Magic: The Gathering, yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play my perpetual production card. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. So, where I want to spend most of our, we're gonna come back to the the question about the commentary and sort of the frame of, of the commentary and what we can glean from it. Um, but where I want to spend most of my time is in the notes. To me, the commentary is like two things, right? There's, there's the commentary itself which is pretty general, right? And there are a few things that are really interesting that, that, that really add to my understanding of the Athrobeth, but not many, honestly. Most of these are, are things that we already know. You and I already know because we've been studying this stuff all the way through. We've been following Tolkien's... So we are like the opposite now of somebody who needs to get a crash course so they can have some kind of context. We got... We've got context in spades for the Athrobeth, right? Uh, so a lot of what he's doing is not really necessary, but some of the stuff is really interesting. You know, like, as I was saying, the, the you know, this, this bit strikes me as a real, you know, there's some really interesting conclusions we can draw from this about the state of Tolkien's thinking at this point. And there'll be some other moments like that too. But the main thing, the notes. The notes is where he gets to talking about the philosophical stuff. Right. Really kind of leaning into some of those uh, considerations that underlie the Athrobeth, right? The statements of Finrod and Andreth. Um, and I'm going to be very interested to go through some of those to really get, because this is it. This is, this is the, 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 the furthest that Tolkien is going to go, really, uh, with his discussion of the fate of men and the relationship between the fate of men and the fate of elves. This is this is the high water mark as far as that stuff goes. So I want to make sure that we're really seeing all the stuff that he's trying to say. And there's some of the stuff that he explains pretty clearly, um, or even just you know uh, mentions very evocatively uh, in his notes. So we're going to spend some time on his notes. Then we're going to talk about um, the uh, the the tale of Adonel, um, uh, the story of the fall that he wrote. Uh, the longer Numenorean version of the Athrobeth. Um, so that's my hope for next time is to talk about the notes and to talk about the tale of Adonai. We'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how far we get in there. But we're almost all the way up to uh, uh, to uh, Myths Transformed, the final section of the book. Someday we will actually finish Morgoth's Ring. But I, again, repeat as I've been repeating I'm not sorry that we're taking a really long time to talk about this book. Thanks for joining me. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, see you guys again next week. Uh, and um, I will look forward to that, as always. Thanks, everybody. Good night now.
The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.